Grab your Bibles, turn to John's Gospel, continuing in this lengthy uh, series. What I want to do this morning, uh, ask, um, ask the question, but then go back several chapters and bring us up to the storyline to where we are for our text in chapter 9. Um, and the question is, is simply, do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus? If you read the text for this morning, you'll, you know that we're going to be looking at the story of a man who was born blind, Jesus made to see. Um, but what I want us to do to, to, to rightly see the magnitude of this moment in chapter 9 is back up to where this, this narrative started, uh, even back to, to chapter 6, and see how chapter 9 is, is really kind of a, a pinnacle moment. It's going to roll into our text for the next two weeks from uh, John chapter 10. Uh, and so just look at, look at John chapter 6. We'll not read all of these, obviously. Jesus, at the beginning of John chapter 6, feeds 5,000 men plus women uh, and walks on water and then in chapter 6 and verse 35 declares himself to be the bread of life. And the dot that's connected there is to God's provision in the wilderness, that provision of manna. And so the storyline goes on. Then the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles begins in chapter 7. And the main emphasis there in chapter 7 being where Jesus stands up and declares, uh, if anyone thirsts, verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He said this about the Spirit. And so he's made a connection to the manna in the wilderness, declaring himself to be the bread of life. Now he's making a, making a connection to the provision of water that God gave in the, to his people in the wilderness and declaring, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then we come to chapter 8, and in chapter 8, verse 12 and following, Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so he's made the connection to the manna by declaring himself to be the bread of life. He's made the connection to the provision of water in the wilderness wanderings by saying, if you thirst, come to me, and out of, your, out of yourself, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And then in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world, making the Old Testament connection of God guiding his people in those wilderness wanderings with that pillar of fire. Uh, when the pillar of fire would move, then God's people would move. Then Jesus goes on and ultimately declares himself to be the I Am of the Old Testament at the end of chapter 8. And at this point, the Pharisees, who have kind of been in on the conversation but debating the conversation at different points, they actually pick up rocks and they're going to stone Jesus because he declared himself to be God. They did not recognize him as God, and so in their minds, he is guilty of blasphemy, and so they are justified in trying to kill Jesus. So Jesus uh, hides himself, chapter 8, verse 59, and leaves out of the temple. And so we get to our text in chapter 9 today, and what we're going to see in our text today is an illustration of chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so Jesus is going to heal a guy who is blind. He's going to make a blind man see as an illustration of his declaration. This blind man is ultimately going to be kicked out of the synagogue, which is the greatest fear for the Jew in that day. And then in chapter 10, our two passages for the next two weeks that Billy will be preaching, in chapter 10, Jesus declares himself to be the good shepherd and talks about what the good shepherd is. With the backdrop of this blind man who has been cast out of the synagogue, Jesus going and finding him as we'll see the story unfold together. Why do I go through all those all, all six 
from chapter 6 to chapter 10, why do we go through all of those chapters to cover chapter 9? It's important for us to understand what's been going on in John's writing. He's under this phrase from the Holy Spirit, recording events from the life of Jesus for the purpose of chapter 20, verse 31, that you might believe. And that by believing, you, might have, you may have life in His name. And so chapter 9 doesn't happen just in isolation. It's just not another thought in John's mind. He's like, well, let's just throw the story of the blind guy in here. Now, the story of the blind guy intentionally comes after the declaration of the light of the world, which comes after, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, which comes after I am the bread of life. And you see all of these dots being connected in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so in chapter 9 specifically, we have an illustration of that declaration that Jesus makes in chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the way the narrative for this, we'll cover all of chapter 9, the way the narrative moves is on these different conversations with different people. And so that's the way we'll walk through it. We'll walk through uh, each section and try to understand what's going on here in this uh, interesting encounter with Jesus and the blind man and then the Pharisees and the blind man and then Jesus with the blind man again. But we're asking the question, do you see Jesus? Or are you blind? Are you blind? We see, a, we see a, a physical demonstration of a spiritual reality in this story of the blind man. So let's read. We'll read verses 1 through 7 and make comments and then we'll keep going from there. So chapter 9 and verse 1. As he passed by, that's Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might, might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Declaring the same thing he just declared in chapter 8, verse 12. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So that verses 1 through 7 set the context of the narrative all the way through chapter 9. And so the disciples are interested here in a theological conversation. They, they happen upon this man who has been blind from birth, verse 1, and his disciples ask, hey, who's guilty of the sin here? Is it this man or his parents? And so the common belief in Judaism was that if there was suffering, there was sin. All suffering was the direct result of sin based on Exodus 20, Exodus 34. And so in their mind, when they see this guy who's born blind, this blindness that this guy is living under, living with, was punishment for something that this man had done. They believed that you could actually sin in the womb and then have consequences for that sin. Or something his parents had done. So they asked Jesus, Jesus, who sinned, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And so they're interested in this, in this theological conversation. And Jesus' words here in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but, parents, but that the works of God might be, might be displayed in him. Now, to be clear, all suffering, all tragedy in the world is the result of sin, big picture. All suffering that we experience in the world is the result of sin. Rewind button all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. But in this particular case, this man was not blind because of his parents' sin or because of his pre-birth sin. Jesus said this man is blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Just a, a note here before we move on in the text. Suffering and calamity and even tragedy 
set the stage for God's work. And in those seasons of suffering, we're inclined to think that someone is at fault, right? We always want to blame someone. But God often designs and orchestrates situations in life, especially suffering, to display His work of grace and to do so for, for His glory. And so Jesus uses this moment of theological confusion for the disciples to bring about theological clarity for them. And He tells them, no one is, no one's sin has caused this blindness. Sin, big picture, has caused blindness. But no one's sin has caused, caused this blindness. This guy is blind because, verse 5, I want you to see that I am the light of the world. And so he says uh, in verse 4, we must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work, pointing to the fact that there's urgency in the life and ministry of Jesus. The crucifixion is coming and at that point His work will be complete. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And so what does Jesus do? Verse 6, He spits on the ground. He makes mud with the saliva. We get caught up on that detail and we're like, wait, what's going on? There has to be some underlying meaning. There's Across the board, there are various opinions. Maybe Jesus is rewinding to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where God made man out of the dust of the ground. And so he's kind of recreating this guy's eyes from the dust of the ground. There's, in, in Judaism, there were beliefs about actual spit. And so Jesus is spitting and making mud, applying it to the guy's eyes. That reference is there, and then that reference never comes back in the text. So that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is the light of the world is making a blind man see. So we can't get sidetracked on a detail here. But what we do see is that in this man, with Jesus saying the works of God might be displayed in him, that his physical blindness is a picture of man's spiritual blindness. And spiritual blind, spiritual blind people can't see the light of the world, and so physically blind people are going to remain blind with no hope of ever having sight, just like spiritually blind people. And so this interaction with Jesus and the blind man and his disciples sets the stage for six conversations that are going to flow out of this event. And each of these conversations illustrate how people re- respond to Jesus, the light of the world. Jesus actually fades off of the scene as we, as we go through the text. We'll see Jesus doesn't come back in until the guy's actually kicked out of the synagogue. And so the conversation centers around this man uh, who was born blind. And so we're just going to go through all six conversations and help us to understand what it means to actually see. What does it mean to really see? And as you see the growth in this man as he's being questioned by different people will hopefully understand what it means to be able to see as a result of the light of the world making us to see. So the first conversation is between the blind man and his neighbors. We see that conversation in verses 8 through 12. Between the blind man and his neighbors. So verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, so we, we find another detail here about this blind man. He's not just a blind man being taken care of by his, by his family. He's a blind man who whose whole life has consisted of begging. And so each day he will be led by the hand, he will walk out with a stick and sit and be dependent upon people walking by out of their good morality to give their duty to him to help the poor beggar. So the neighbors seem, he was before a beggar, he's standing before them, and they're asking the question, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said it is he, others said no, but he is like him. But he, the blind man, kept saying, no, I am the man. So kind of get the picture here. He goes back into, his, into his, his circle of people, the people who would have known him, and everybody's, there's a debate going on back and forth. I think it's him, but he's not begging anymore, and he's apparently walking and seeing. 
But then there's others who are saying, well, no, it's just, it just looks like him. And then there's the guy standing in front of them who is essentially just waving his hands in front of them and being like, no, guys, it's me. These work now. Declaring to them, I am the man. So they asked him, verse 10, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Because in the event, Jesus puts the mud on the eyes of the man and says, go to Siloam and wash. Like, go wash your eyes in the pool of Siloam, which means sent, probably a connection to Jesus being the one sent from God as the light of the world. And so then the guy apparently goes to the pool of Siloam, washes his eyes, and once the mud is removed from his eyes, he can now see. And Jesus isn't there. And so the, the, he, he, reckon, he knows the guy's name is Jesus, but he doesn't know who Jesus is. And they ask him, verse 12, where is he? He said, I do not know. So you have these two groups of people here. He simply refers to him as the man called Jesus. And so you'll see as this guy's physical blindness has been healed, his spiritual blindness is consistently being healed. Notice the different ways that he refers to this person who made him see. First, he calls him the man called Jesus. So that's conversation one between the blind man and his neighbors. Conversation two is between the blind man and the Pharisees. Between the blind man and the Pharisees. And so, verse 13, they, the neighbors, brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. They're wanting answers to their questions. How did this happen? Who has the authority to do that? Maybe not ill intent even in verse 13. It's just what you would do in a situation like this. But we're introduced to this reality. We saw it in chapter 5 and the healing that happened in chapter 5 as well. John comes back to it in recording uh, chapter 9, verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And like you could, you, you, you could hear in, that, in verse 14, you should hear just the climax, just the, the tension in the story building. I mean, the drums are starting. You know, you know things are, are about to start happening here. And in chapter 5, Jesus said to the guy who was lame, he told him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And John records there, at once the man was healed, took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. And a similar situation happened with the lame man as is going to happen here with the blind man. So, so in their mind, Jesus violated the Sabbath not so much by healing a blind man, but by actually making the clay that he put on the guy's eyes to heal him. And so a, a Jewish violation was to knead anything, K-N-E-A-D, to, to fashion anything on the Sabbath. And so Jesus makes mud on the Sabbath, the equivalent of like making dough for bread, and applies mud to the guy's eyes, and Jesus is in violation of the Sabbath. So we know it's on the Sabbath, verse 15, the Pharisees again asked him how he recovered his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes, I watched, and I said, I don't, I like this guy. Like as I read this story, like, I want to meet this guy. Because his responses are just gold. They say, well, how did this happen? He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. And he's got witnesses like the people who brought him to the Pharisees would say, yeah, he was blind. He was begging yesterday. He was begging this morning. But now he's standing before you whole. And so in their mind, Jesus violated the Sabbath day. And verse 6... Verse 16 shows that even among this group that's opposed to Jesus, there is beginning to be a division among those people. So verse, 
Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, Well, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So you have this one group of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who are saying there's no way this person is from God because he's violating the Sabbath. And you have another group who's saying, Hmm, not so sure about that. If you made a blind guy see, how can he be a sinner? And so there's, there's two groups, but the issue at hand is that they cannot argue with the proof that is standing before them. They have a, a man who was blind who can now see standing before them. And so what they do is they turn the conversation into a theological debate with this man, and they end up being perplexed with this situation. Verse 17, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. So it's going from a man called Jesus to now referring to him as a prophet. And when they, when they say in verse 17, what do you say about him? There's an emphatic nature toward their question. Like, what do you? Like, they would be pointing their fingers. We want to know what you say about him. And it's interesting because in, in the context, this guy was uneducated. This guy was not influential. He's, he's not of importance, and they are asking him, what do you think about him? One writer comments on their question to the blind man, normally they would not have dreamed of putting a question on a religious issue to such a man. The request is the measure of their embarrassment. He's no expert in the law. He's not been through rabbinical schools. He has, however, been changed. He was blind, and now he sees. And it seems as the storyline continues to unfold as just as the man's physical eyes were opened, his spiritual eyes toward Jesus are opening as well. He was referred to as this man called Jesus. And now, when before the religious authority of the day, he says he's a prophet. Not just a man, but he's a prophet. So move on to conversation number three. We've had the man and the Pharisees, the man and his neighbors, but now... We have a conversation between the parents of the man and the Pharisees. And so they're seeking confirmation. They're trying to get some kind of rational explanation for the situation. In verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? So you have the guy standing in front of him. You have the people who brought him to the Pharisees. And that's not enough validation for them, and they call the family into, into the conversation. And what, what we see in this family's response, we have two modes of operation in life, and, and we, see, we see them here. We either operate in life by fear of man, or we operate in life by fear of God. Those are, those are our two options. It's either fear of man, we're concerned more about what man can do to us than anything else, or we have fear of God, a reverent fear of God, understanding that He orchestrates and sustains all things in life by the power of His mighty hand. And so look at how the parents respond. Verse 20, His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Parents. Parents. Terrible parenting. (laughs) 
They essentially sold their son out on this event. And then John includes an explanation for us in verse 22 to help us understand why they didn't go to bat for their son. Look at verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So they didn't stand with their son who was once blind from birth. He came into the world blind and is now perfectly healed, can see, and now they are saying, well, that's our son, and he was born blind, and apparently he can now see, but we really don't know any more than that. You can just ask him. He is of age. Not associating themselves with their son because they were fearful of the situation. Fearful of what man could do for them. And so the parents we see are more concerned with staying in the synagogue than with rejoicing over their blind son who can now see. And the evidence of a changed life is literally before them. And they chose the fear of man. And so the conversation is between the parents and the Pharisees. Moving on to conversation number four. This is where the, the intensity really ramps up. And this conversation is between the blind man and the Pharisees. Conversation four between the blind man and the Pharisees. So they call him back in. Verse 24, so for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. They're calling him into an oath. When they, say, when they say give glory to God, it's not like, hey, worship God right quick. It's give glory to God. It's, it's, it's the same thing that was, that was spoken to, uh, to Achan in Joshua chapter 7 when he, had stole, when he had kept some of the things that were supposed to be devoted and the Israelites had experienced defeat and God just narrowed the focus all the way down to Achan and his family. And that was the commission that Joshua comes to Achan with and says, Give glory to God. Tell us what you've done. We are, we are putting you under a binding oath. And that's the same thing these, the, the Pharisees are doing here with this blind man, with a formerly blind man. And so, they have only one option and one that, one that fits into their theological framework. Let's look at what they say. So, they tell him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, just consider for a moment the weight of those words. And we can get so caught up in the story, we just gloss over the true blindness that is being demonstrated by the Pharisees. You have the light of the world who has given light to this man who is standing before them. And they say to him, we know that this man is a sinner. So they, in their pride, and arrogance and blindness are calling Jesus, the Son of God, a sinner. And they are calling the guy who's been healed in to confirm their accusation. Thankfully, the guy doesn't tell the company line here. Verse 25, he answered, Well, he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. He says in essence to them, I'm not the judge here. I don't know if he is a sinner. I'm not the religious expert. That's for you to decide. But this is one thing that I do know. Just a little while ago, I was blind. And now I'm standing before you and I can see every one of you. Which reminds us that the power of personal testimony of a changed life is so often 
greater than the power of a religious argument. This evidence of change is standing before them, and he's saying, I'm not going to debate with you over whether the fact this man is a sinner or not. I will tell you what I do know. I was blind, but now I see. And so Jesus, we see, as this man's blindness, begin, his, his sight begins to unfold, we see the reality that Jesus changes lives, not so that we can just win arguments and convince people, but so that we can point people to the one who actually changed our lives. And so the religious oppression attempts to squash this spiritual vitality that's before them. They say, verse 26, What did He do to you? How did He open your eyes? He's told them already. And so you can kind of see the, the, the logic for the Pharisees just kind of going in circles and they're looking for a blip somewhere that they can, that they can capitalize on, but they're not finding one. They say, What did He do to you? How did He open your eyes? Verse 27, He answered them, I've told you already. And you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become His disciples? Like, you just kind of get a little bit of wit, sarcasm in this guy here as he's turning the conversation on the Pharisees. He said, it's for you to judge, I guess, if he's a sinner or not. I'm just telling you, I was blind, but now I can see. And then they go into, well, wait, tell us, tell us what he did. I told you already, you wouldn't listen then. Apparently, you're not listening, listening now. Maybe you also want to become one of his disciples, which could be an indication here for this guy that he has become one of Jesus' disciples. You, you also want to become one of his disciples? Do you want in on this? And so his question to them actually points to the development of his understanding of who this person who healed him was. Now, keep in mind, he has not physically seen Jesus up to this point. Has no idea. He just knows that he, this man called Jesus came and put mud on his eyes, told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, and then he received his sight. That's all he knows about this person. And so their response is that of hostility that's often the response of the religious elite. Verse 28, they reviled him, saying... They accused him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. His pride and arrogance just starts to explode to the surface. Here, we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. In essence, they are saying to the guy standing before them, who do you think you are? You are going to be the one talking to us like this? No, we are disciples of Moses. They saw themselves as the verifying authority in verse 29 when they make the when they use the phrase, but as for this man, the phrase this man is in the language of the, of the New Testament is a term of derision, like not a not a gentle way to refer to someone, and so they their words express their own contempt for Jesus, and in fact when they declare themselves to be disciples of Moses, their own words actually betray themselves. John chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus said to them, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Now, this man seems to be emboldened in this moment. He, he, in, in the context, and if he took the, the same route that his parents took, he should be cowering down in this moment. He should be backing off in this moment and just be happy that he can see. And just walk out and just say, nah, I, You guys are right. I don't know. Let's just, let's just get along. But instead, he starts pushing into the situation. Look at his response in verse 30. 
The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? His whole point there is, this guy's a big deal. And you're supposed to be the ones who know everything? But you, I was blind, now I see this guy did it, and you don't know where he comes from? This is an amazing thing. Verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And so they're the experts. They should know, but he starts pressing into their theological conversation. And as this guy just keeps talking, you can hear the spiritual clarity in his words. As he's standing before the ones who should actually recognize Jesus as the light of the world. So verse 31, he says, God listens and listens to those who know him. Verse 32, he says, only God could have opened my eyes. Verse 33, if this man was not from God, this would not have happened. And so, when, you realize, when they realize the game is up, what's their last resort? Get on out of here. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. And so their last resort is to, to get out, and in them casting him out, they confirm the actual fear that his parents had. And they, in fact, should have recognized Jesus giving sight to the blind as an evidence of the fact that he was the Messiah. Isaiah 29, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 42. Several passages, several references in the Old Testament point to the fact that the Messiah will bring sight to the blind. And this is a physical illustration of this spiritual reality. And so what do they do? Well, first they assassinate the guy's character. They said, no, you, you, are, you are a sinner. You were born in utter sin, attributing the fact of his blindness to sin. You were born in utter sin. And isn't this what self-righteous legalism typically does? Self-righteous legalism typically belittles people who are in opposition, who don't toe the line, who even ask questions, who even seek understanding. And so that's exactly what's going on here. They view this man as being beneath them. And isn't it also true that those who have truly tasted of grace actually understand more fully who people really are? Image bearers wrecked by sin and in need of grace. Blind. Blind. And so their parent, his parents' fear is confirmed and he is cast out of the synagogue. Now let's be clear here. This is a big deal in the life of a first century Jew. This is not just get out of here and you cannot come back. This is isolation. This is outcast. He's isolated now from his family. He's isolated from friends. He's isolated from his religious security. He's removed from everything familiar. And if it's not Jesus is changing his life, it, was, it would have actually been better for the guy to have stayed blind and to remain in that context. But Jesus changed his life. And so we see in this event where the Pharisees, where the religious leaders cast him out, this is the first definite direct action toward a follower of Jesus. And so that conversation between the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the blind man leads us to conversation number five. Beautiful, beautiful moment. 
beautiful picture. Conversation 5 between Jesus and the man. Before we read this, just think redemption. Just think this reality, this deep reality of redemption. Now let's, let's not forget what's brought us to verse 35. The man was born blind, has spent his whole adult life. His parents say he's of age, which means he's an adult. He can speak for himself. He spent his whole adult, adult life begging. In a moment, a random stranger comes up to him, puts mud on his eyes, and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. He goes and washes in the pool of Siloam, and he comes back seeing. His neighbors pepper him with questions, hey, what's going on here? And they probably just say, hey, let's, just go, let's go talk to the Pharisees. They can clear all this up for us. Goes to the Pharisees. They hammer him with questions, send him out, bring, their, bring his parents in. His parents sell him out. Say, not, I mean, just ask him how it happened. We're not going to attach too closely to this because they were fearful that they would be cast out of the synagogue. He gets brought back into the courtroom of the Pharisees and ultimately is rejected. So he doesn't have his neighbors, he doesn't have his family, and he doesn't have his religious system. He's been cast out of the synagogue. So you can just kind of envision this guy who was once blind, but can now see just kind of walking around thinking, what now? What am I going to do now? This leads us to conversation 5, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him. Those three words, y'all. Having found him. Some of the sweetest words that you can read on the pages of Scripture. Jesus heard they cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And what is Jesus doing here? He's seeking out the man. And inviting him to believe. The word you there in verse 35 is emphatic again. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus is welcoming this outcast into his fold. But look at the guy's response. He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus is standing in front of him, and he doesn't recognize that this is the same guy who sent him to receive his sight. And Jesus said, verse 37, you've seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. And at that moment, as if everything just explodes to reality for this guy, everything becomes clear. He truly, fully begins to see. Look at his response in verse 38. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. He doesn't recognize Jesus, but, but when he does recognize Jesus, his response is that of worship. You see two realities there. You see one, a confession, when he says, Lord, I believe. Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And when Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man, who's also the one who gave him sight, he declares, Lord, I believe. And then John records this next response in verse 38, and he worshipped him. So we have confession and adoration in this one moment, in this brief conversation with Jesus and the man. And so you get the picture there. The man is just wandering around aimlessly trying to figure out what's up with life, and Jesus goes and seeks him out strikes up the conversation and invites him to believe on him. 
And then conversation six, the final conversation in the story is between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus makes that statement in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. It's kind of like, what are you saying there, Jesus? Which is kind of what the Pharisees are experiencing. Some of the Pharisees near Him heard these things and said to Him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no, you would, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So they asked Jesus, Are we blind? And Jesus' response tells them, If you actually recognized your need, you could see. If you recognize the fact that you are blind, you can see. You think you have no need of me, so you will remain in your blindness. So what do we do? What do we do with this story? How, how do we as a church take John chapter nine, Jesus healing a blind man, and put this into practice in our lives? A few points in conclusion. One. God has a Christ-exalting purpose for all the things that happen in this life. Even if it's something as extreme as a man being born blind. That was the disciples' question. We need to blame someone for this. Jesus says, sin, big picture, is to blame, but it's not him or his parents. It's so that this can happen. And this blind man receives his sight and then ultimately becomes a follower by Jesus. Nothing happens by accident in this life. Nothing happens by accident. Accident, chance, luck, those types of words have no place in the vocabulary of the Christian. This man was born blind so that Jesus could make him see physically and then ultimately so he could make him see spiritually. And so what do we do with that reality? We, we recognize God's kind hand of providence in our lives and we worship Him. We recognize His kind hand of providence in our lives and we worship Him. Another takeaway point is based on the man's confession in verse 25 to the Pharisees. One thing I do know, that I was blind, now I see. Can you actually say that? Can you actually say that? I, I was blind. I was blind in my sin. I was dead in my sin. But now I see. And maybe through the singing and preaching of the Word, God has exposed spiritual darkness in your life today through this man or through the Pharisees. And He's inviting you to believe in and on the light of the world. You simply repent and believe. You simply confess what this dear brother confessed in verse 38. Lord, I believe. And He worshipped Him. Now, for the Christian, this story is more than just a reminder that God has brought us from darkness to light, which it absolutely is a reminder. Like, let's not forget, church, we were once in darkness. And had God not moved on us, we would have remained in darkness. But when God moves on us and brings us to His glorious light, we become His. We become new. We become transformed. And so this is certainly a reminder of that truth. This story is also a reminder to us that God continually grows us in our understanding and in our worship toward Him. We see it in the different ways that this man refers to Jesus in the story. He starts with calling Him a man called Jesus. Then He refers to Him as a prophet. Then He refers to Him as being from God. Then He refers to Him as Son of Man. And then 
Sir. And then ultimately, he refers to Him as Lord. When his full understanding of Jesus becomes reality for him, is that his response is that of worship. And so, the Christian life, the life of conversion, redemption in Christ, is truly a journey. And it begins in a moment, similar to the man in John 9, when the blind person is made to see, but it continues for a lifetime. As God in His grace continually sheds the light of the Gospel on our lives. Consistently and constantly exposing the remaining areas of darkness in our lives. We've been made new. But we still wrestle with darkness. We still fight with darkness. And so this is why we say we preach the Gospel to ourselves continually. We never graduate from the Gospel. We have to constantly be reminded of the Gospel. And then we'll finish with the question we began with. Do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus? Not with the eyes of your physical body, but with the spiritual eyes. Or are you blind? Trusting in your knowledge, understanding, influence, maybe like the Pharisees, or trusting in a a setting, a context like the, the parents? Or do you actually see Jesus like this dear brother in John chapter 9? Is the confession of your life, Lord, I believe, and you worship Him. And God in His kindness constantly draws us into His light. Light and darkness cannot coexist. I'm no genius, but I get it. You flip a light switch on, darkness is gone. And light and darkness cannot coexist. And so God in His grace, Christ is the light of the world. And that declaration He made in chapter 8, verse 12, whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Christian, you are no longer to be in darkness. You are no longer to turn off lights and close doors and compartmentalize areas of your life to try to shield them from God's light. Because through the preaching and understanding and Meditation on God's Word, what is He constantly doing? Bombarding us with what? Light. Light. And when we're bombarded with light, we're reminded of Jesus, the light of the world. 